ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Requests to buy King Billy Pine from a sawmill in Strawn in Tasmania come in regularly by email from all over the world. King Billy Pine is unique to Tasmania and grows for thousands of years. And woodworkers love working with it because it's considered one of the rarest timbers in Tasmania. But the only way to get access to it legally is to convince the 90-year-old sawmill to sell you some. And some lucky craftsmen do get their hands on this last sliver of rare timber and they're making some beautiful things out of it, like this auto harp you can hear. On Australia-wide, taking care of the last cachet of highly prized King Billy Pine. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia-wide, coming to you from Wadjuk Country, Perth. The family of an Aboriginal man who was killed after being restrained by crowd controllers has called on the NT government to address violence in the security industry. A triple O call has been released in which the man, known as Mr King, can be heard yelling, I can't breathe, as he lay dying on the floor of the Catherine Hotel in 2013. The NT government is defending its use of private security guards to patrol public places, despite a Four Corners investigation revealed shocking altercations involving the companies behind them. One of the security guards responsible for Mr King's death has warned it's only a matter of time before it happens again. Charlotte King reports from ABC Regional Investigations. It's 2013 and a staff member has called police from the Catherine Hotel as two security guards struggle with an Aboriginal patron on the ground. And has anyone been hurt? Um, no, but the troller's at that trying to restrain. He just won't give up. He keeps resisting. The man on the ground, known for cultural reasons as Mr King, can be heard in the background yelling, I can't breathe. The guards don't let up. One has him in a headlock and Mr King is held down for more than seven minutes. When police arrive and tell the guards to get off, Mr King is unresponsive. He dies a short time later. It's caused us a lot of problems, you know, losing a life and family member, which is, it hurts that we want, you know, no, no replacement for a family member to come back to us. Rachel McDinney was one of Mr King's aunties. She attended the criminal trial in 2014, in which the two security guards who held her nephew down were acquitted for manslaughter. Two years later, a coronial inquest found that the guards' actions caused Mr King's death though it did not consider their criminal responsibility. Mr King's nephew, Tremaine Riley, was at the Catherine Hotel on the night of his uncle's death. In September, he was restrained by two security guards at the Karama Shopping Plaza in Darwin after he says they refused him entry to use the toilet. Mr Riley told the ABC's Four Corners the guards grabbed him by the neck. From there, you had to tackle me, put me down to the ground and drag me out of the road. I couldn't breathe. The company who employs those guards, Neptune NT, did not respond to questions from the ABC. Neither did shopping centre management for Karama Plaza. Mr King's mother is Eunice Isaac. Why do they want to grab people on their throat? 
and put them down on the ground. She says she can't imagine how Tremaine would have felt when he was restrained. He was probably thinking about how my son was put down. But lucky for him, someone went there to tell them, leave him alone. Neptune NT also has a contract with the NT government to conduct street patrols with a uniformed dog squad. One of the guards who was responsible for Mr King's death in Catherine is Sean Clark. He's never spoken to the media about the incident, which he says haunts him every day. I I wish I could take that day back. I wish I would have just tried to talk to him and keep talking to him. He says security guards are not trained appropriately to police the streets. Do I think an incident like Mr King could happen again? I'm just waiting for the day that it does. The coroner investigating Mr King's case heard the guards' training was deficient and that steps were being taken to improve it. The inquest also heard the Territory's regulator, Licensing NT, had drafted a document in the wake of the death to force all guards to acknowledge they knew of the risks around neck restraints. Selma Hooson is Tremaine's auntie and attended the coronial inquest for her cousin, Mr King. They made a promise that court, you know, that that shouldn't happen again. At the courthouse, they said it, you know, what when we went there, they said they were trying to stop this from what they're doing, but... I don't think so. It's happening again. On ABC Darwin Breakfast this morning, the Chief Minister, Natasha Files acknowledged some of the violence involving security guards in the NT was disturbing. And I will say it was very confronting vision. Um, And, you know, we certainly have difficult issues here in the Territory. The Chief Minister has defended the public security patrols. Something that I've asked the department that licenses security guards is how people can make a complaint. And so the vast majority of security guards are really hardworking people. But perhaps is there an easier complaints mechanism acknowledging an Indigenous Territorians where English is the second language? How can we, you know, have a process that if someone is unsettled or has had a confronting incident, that that can be um, put through so that if you can see patterns of behaviour, because from time to time you may get someone that needs further training. Northern Territory Chief Minister Natasha Files ending that story from Charlotte King with additional reporting from Andy Burns and Brooke Fryer. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. The Prime Minister has just returned from the United States where he enjoyed quite the welcome in Washington. Good morning, or as you would say, good day. It's an honour to welcome you all to the White House as we celebrate the enduring alliance between Australia and the United States. Anthony Albanese will soon be in Beijing, the first visit by an Australian leader in seven years. But today, he's been enjoying a ginger beer in Bundaberg in Queensland. The famous family-owned soft drink brewery has found a way to stay in Bundaberg, the regional town that shares its name. Exporting around the world, Bundaberg brewed drinks has seen major expansion and today opened a new $120 million factory not far from the airport, which has supported almost 1,000 jobs. Here's the PM at the opening. Whenever you go around the world, you see Bundaberg ginger beer and other Bundaberg products. And that's a great credit and brings uh, this, uh, this wonderful city of Bundaberg uh, to life right around the globe. Uh, I was with President Biden just on the, uh, a few days ago. His go-to drink is ginger beer. Now, we need to uh, convert him to Bundaberg ginger beer. I've spoken with him about this. 
uh, while I was there because it is, it is such an amazing product. And the fact that it's so iconic, people see that bottle, they see that wonderful tap, top that you take off and you know you think of Australia. Joanna Marie was at the opening and she joins me now. Joanna, now this $120 million factory nearly didn't happen. Can you tell me why? Yeah, well, this is something, um, you know, the Bundaberg Brew Drinks has been operating here in Bundaberg for more than 50 years. And their current or their or their old uh, factory, they'd actually outgrown. And, of course, then they're having to look around for what was going to be next for them. Where were they going to go and, and take their manufacturing? They've gone to the Queensland government and the federal government and said, obviously, you know, it is cheaper to go overseas um, or, or interstate even. But the Queensland government and the federal government were you know keen to see them keep this manufacturing an iconic business here in Bundaberg where of course it shares its namesake so they've uh, injected 19 million dollars from the federal government and you know some more money from the Queensland government and that has allowed them to now you know secure land here in Bundaberg and build this super brewery that I think actually it, it was more than 150 million dollar investment you know once the family company had put its own money up to the table as well. Like you said, they've built this super brewery, but what does the business look like these days? They've moved well beyond just producing Bundaberg ginger beer. That's right. Um, you know, there, there's a number of soft drinks that the company has brought out over the years. I think it was in about 2010, they brought out this sparkling range and, you know, they bring out new flavours every so often. So, um, you know, it has become, you know, not just this iconic ginger beer, but also the, the soft drinks, which have been pivotal, pivotal in, um, you know, their international exporting um, and, and really seeing success of this business. Joanna, we heard from the Prime Minister who is there today about how, you know, there's international interest in the Bundaberg ginger beer. Tell me about the kind of international deals that they have. Well, after bringing out that sparkling range, they, you know, they had their first sales to Costco and I think that was about 2012 that that happened but um, you know as I mentioned the this soft drink range is really where they've seen this huge success they are now exporting to 60 countries worldwide and because of this super brewery they're saying that's going to be able to they're going to be able to double their production essentially and you know continue growing in that international marketing space I mean th- that's the main reason for us to talk about it on Australia wide because it's such an iconic business everybody knows Bundaberg ginger beer one of the kind of things that it always pivoted around was that it used Queensland sugarcane. Is that still the case? They definitely do use the Queensland sugar. They they grow a little bit themselves, but they also buy the bulk of it from Queensland growers. And, you know, the, the other flavoured soft drinks, a lot of their ingredients are also grown and sourced in Queensland and Australia. Only some of the products and, and um, ingredients come from overseas, but the most of it comes from Australia itself. So that is also, you know, one of the the iconic and and important parts of this company. So tell us about what it means to the economy of Bundaberg on the whole. Well, you know, not only has it been a major investment, you know, some $150 million we're talking here, you know, that has flow-on effects for the economy. You know, we've seen... um, experts and engineers brought in from overseas. They stay in hotels here. They eat here. Um, That's 
been some of the investment, but then ongoing, it's supplying, uh, it's going to employ about 600 jobs, uh, ongoing jobs at that factory. So it's one of the biggest employers of the region. We're also seeing, you know, flow on effects for other smaller businesses, people like refrigeration mechanics and, and those who provide services to this company. So, you know, it is has a huge impact and footprint on the Bundaberg economy. The name is synonymous with the town. How important was it to keep it there? Well, that is, you know, that's something that we talked about with the founder and um, the CEO of the company. They said that Bundaberg is the place and was the place that they wanted to have their brewery remain because this is the home and the inception, inception place of their company. And, you know, it wouldn't be Bundaberg Brew Drinks if it was made in another country. Tell us about the family's connection because this is a multi-generational business. Are they still connected? Yeah, yeah, they are. So, um, you know, the founder, um, Cliff Fleming, he has sort of stepped back from the day-to-day operations now and his son-in-law is, you know, the CEO of the company. He's behind, you know, and has been pivotal in a lot of their exporting overseas and growing the company. But even today, we saw the Prime Minister meet with the grandchildren of the family. So, yeah, you see that multi-leveled Uh, involvement with all the family members there. It's really nice to see. And Joanna, was there any discussion about manufacturing in regional Australia and how important it is at all? Yeah, the the Prime Minister said that, you know, this was an amazing day for manufacturing in Australia. You know, it is important. He said while it was important for uh, and in some cases welcomed for multinational big corporations to invest in in Australian companies, you know, this was definitely um, a win for Australian manufacturing and being able to keep a family-owned business operating in Australia now for decades to come. Joanna Marie, thanks very much for talking to Australia Wide. Thank you. You're listening to Australia Wide on ABC Radio. Have you ever heard of King Billy Pine? Well, furniture makers and woodworkers love it and it's considered to be Tasmania's rarest timber. That's partly because it's really slow growing and because it's illegal to cut down anymore. But some lucky craftsmen can get their hands on it if they can convince a 90-year-old sawmill to sell them some. They've got the last major legal supply of saw logs left and they don't give it up easily. The instrument you can hear is an auto harp. It's closely related to the piano and made popular by people like Billy Connolly and June Carter Cash. But this one is a bit different. It's made entirely of timber grown on the wild west coast of Tasmania. I'm Tony Newport. Uh, I was born on the west coast. I was born in Zion. And I'm into music. Give me a compass. I started to record myself. I'm not out of vanity. Um, more out of trying to learn because anybody that's ever been in the bedroom and belted songs out and thought that sounded pretty good, well, I did that. <laughs> and then I played them back and some of them weren't very good at all. <laughs> yes, so, I've been there. <laughs> so it was a great learning process. The old steam mills, they caught on fire. It is a pretty ancient design, really. It's, it's based on the design of the old zither. So it has that trapezoid shape. 
it has 17, it has 37 strings rather, and it's related to the dulcimer family, the piano family. Now, this one in particular that you've got with you today is pretty special. It's made entirely of Tasmanian timbers. It's very special, Meg. It is, I can say with with uh, out any shadow of the doubt, it is the only one in the world that's made out of Tasmanian timber. And uh, beautiful timber it is. It's uh, made out of fiddleback blackwood, cordosaur and king billy, and it has hue and pine bars and buttons. And it's called the Bradshaw Harp because it was made out of timber donated by Ann Bradshaw from the Bradshaw Sawmill in Queenstown. You might have heard Tony mention King Billy Pine there. It's a material that's in huge demand, highly prized by craftsmen all over the world. But good luck getting your hands on it. Third generation sawmiller Ian Bradshaw believes his mill at Queenstown on the west coast holds the last legal supply of King Billy saw logs in the world. And he takes his responsibility as its custodian very seriously. So we're a uh, business that operate in Queenstown, Tasmania, operating for uh, over 90 years now. So what are specialty Tasmanian timbers for those of us who don't know? All the uh, high-value minor species or uh, special woods, they're they're not mainstream timbers that are produced in large volumes. They're small, uh, highly-priced woods that are used for uh, furniture and instrument making and all sorts of crafts, but they're essentially our most valuable timber commodity. And they don't grow in uh, right across Tasmania, they're only in little pockets right throughout the rainforest. Both Hewen and King Billy are in short supply these days, but King Billy Pine is considered the most rare native timber. In the 1960s, a major fire killed hundreds of the trees in a remote mountain range without burning them up. Seeing an opportunity, Ian Bradshaw's family set to work harvesting the trees until they were protected by the declaration of a World Heritage Wilderness Area in the 1980s. Today, it's illegal to harvest the trees, and the Bradshaw's collection is the last major stockpile. I mean, uh, most Tasmanian timbers, in effect, are in very low volumes and uh, in quite high demand. So, I mean, there's so many people out there that want a piece of Tasmania, but there's not everyone that has the ability to, uh, I suppose, improve the value of it. So, I mean, we really have to decide on which customer deserves the best pieces. Third generation Queenstown sawmiller Ian Bradshaw there, accompanied by musician Tony Newport, playing an auto harp made entirely of specialty Tasmanian timbers. And that story from our reporter in northwest Tasmania, Meg Powell. And if you do want to see that instrument, it's really beautiful to have a look at. Check out Australia Wide's webpage and you'll see Meg's story there. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. The New England northwest region of New South Wales is known for its fields of grain, sheep, and cattle, but a commodity a little less traditional is starting to take off. There's been a boom of farming mums becoming flower growers as they look for another avenue stream that lets them stay at home with their children. Laura Webster took a trip into their flower patches to find out more. This uh, patch right here, this is the Iceland poppies patch, and uh, it's just finished its season, but 
I really love the Iceland poppies because uh, they're beautiful cut flower. They come in all different colours, you know, and sometimes different shapes. They've got beautiful big long stems here. Like if you can see this one flower, it's probably, the stem length is probably 50 centimetres. Mm. And they're really tough, so they can handle those strong winds. Mm. Definitely one of my favourites and definitely something that I'll grow each year. So this season I, I put 1,200 seedlings in the ground and... You know, it was amazing. Well, and they just have the most beautiful colours. Absolutely. Yep, they come in all the different colours. Pastel, bright reds, um, white, and the, the big pops of the yellow and the orange. Just amazing. If we come a little further down here, we've got some smaller flowers. Yeah, so these are our straw flowers, also known as uh, paper daisy. And if you feel them, you can, you know, they feel like paper. Oh, they really do, don't they? Yeah, they're amazing. <laughs> so they look great in bouquets or installations or whatever you want to do with them or just by themselves in a vase, but they're also great for drying as well. Where did this all begin? Tell me your story. How did you become a flower farmer? <laughs> well, well, I've always lived on the land um, and I've always had gardens. I've always had a passion for gardening. Um, and I guess I've, you know, always had veggie gardens and they were always huge, uh, for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> and then I, I started, uh, playing with putting flower seeds in amongst the veggies just to attract the bees and the pollinators and all of that. And then I really liked the flowers that I started growing and then I, um, experimented with some cut flower varieties and then, um, it just sort of grew from there. I found myself just waiting like I couldn't wait any longer for the veggies to finish so I could pull them out of the ground and plant more flowers so then after a few years I decided no I'm not going to plant veggies anymore I'm just going to do a flower patch and see how that goes and yeah it's just I haven't stopped really I've just kept going with the flowers and I love it because you you're just always learning about different varieties and yeah so you, you just have to research and um, it's a lot of trial and error. How do you find trying to juggle all of this with a young family uh well you would have seen the porticot down here <laughs> I know, it's just over the back yeah yeah so um poppy my four and a half month old she does spend a little bit of time in there um and i just try and do whatever i can um but it's hard you know like we like they say it takes a village to raise the children and i do rely heavily on my um my mum my mother-in-law and my partner um, and daycare but you know like I'm I'm very lucky I have a very good support crew around me and yeah they do whatever they can to try and assist me. Just to go back a step Poppy is there <laughs> any yeah. relation to the love of flowers? Yeah so Iceland poppies they're one of my favorite flowers yeah. and I just thought it was you know quite nice and well they are beautiful flowers I'm sure you have a beautiful <laughs> little girl. Uh, Shona you mentioned there about being a mum and I've noticed sort of even since I've come back from my own maternity leave, around Tamworth and, and some of the outerlying areas, there's suddenly been almost like what seems like a boom in flower farms. And a lot seem like they're families, young working mothers. Do you know what's going on there? Have you had, got some of your own thoughts? Have you noticed that yourself that we're seeing more and more local flower growers? Yeah, there is. There's been a real boom in the last 18 months, I think. Um, and a lot of the new flower farmers are all my friends. Um, just like myself, I think we're just, you know, women on the land and um, just want to be at home with our kids and gardening too, you know, just, just being at home and starting something, doing something for ourselves and for our family. 
and gardening, growing cut flowers, I guess, is the perfect sort of ideal yeah, setting. Another farmer expanding her flower patch is Shona Rabiliad's close friend, Narrabri farmer and fellow mum, Sarah Wheaton. Her journey to becoming a flower farmer was a little different, though. Ms Wheaton needed flowers for her wedding bouquet. I began growing flowers to add to my to our wedding. Um, and then, yeah, I purchased 200 ranunculus corms after that. And then that began my wholesaling to the florist. Back on Shona Rabiliad's farm, and I think she sums up pretty well the joy that growing flowers brings. I love seeing something start from nothing, so a seed, you know, raising it and growing it and then seeing it produce beautiful flowers and then the reaction on people's faces when they buy the flowers from you or they receive the flowers from you. I think that's why I do it. Tamworth flower farmer Shona Robillard speaking there with Laura Webster amongst the flowers. And that is Australia wide for this Tuesday. Remember, you can podcast this show whenever you want to. Just head to the ABC Listen app, search for Australia wide and the icon will pop up and you can subscribe to us there. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you're having a lovely evening. Cheerio. Listen.